When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary. Because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The fundamentals are there for inflation, I think, for a while. We don't necessarily need free money and zero interest rates forever. Washington at this point doesn't want to add regulation to Bitcoin. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Another $6 trillion in spending is a little hard to imagine right now. Let's look at the student loan debt, which is absolutely staggering. The nation does need some infrastructure reform. We need to get some of this stuff done. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Live from Washington, greetings, where the Supreme Court deals a blow to Fannie and Freddie, their investors, and the director of the agency that controls them, now on his way out. We'll talk about it straight ahead with Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr, as well, Bloomberg White House correspondent Nancy Cook will give us the political side of this. And we're also following the bouncing ball today on infrastructure, as well as plans now, as we've learned, for Vice President Kamala Harris to travel to the southern border later on this week. We'll talk about it all with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno. And today as well, Jennifer Nassour, former chair of the Massachusetts Republican Party and founder of the Pocketbook Project. It's all ahead on this Wednesday. Thank you for spending part of your Wednesday with us on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Matthew. As we turn to a story that's been in the making for over a decade as the Supreme Court drops the hammer on major investors in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac tossing out a core portion of their lawsuit that challenged the government's collection of billions, over $100 billion in profits at the two agencies, is sent it back to a lower court. Now, this ruling means Fannie and Freddie will not be released from government control. And President Biden will also be cleared, has been, to fire the director of the FHFA, a man named Mark Calabria. This is Market Moving News. Stock in Fannie and Freddie fell over 30% each today. And we're joined to talk about it by Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Greg, thanks for being here. This lawsuit was brought by some major investors. It, it was, and what they claimed is uh, the, that uh, the deals that were crafted between the uh, FHFA and uh, the Treasury Department in 2012 uh, basically, the Treasury put a bunch of capital in the Fannie and Freddie, but then got uh, a promise that it would get basically all their profits going forward. They said those agreements were unreasonable, violated both uh, federal statute and uh, the U.S. Constitution and the Supreme Court today largely throughout those claims. Why was the president, in this case President Biden, barred from firing the director? Well, one of those claims, the constitutional claim, basically went like this. The Supreme Court has said that 
certain high officers in, in the executive branch of the government have to be uh, subject to presidential control. The president has to have the ability to fire them. And so what the investors were saying was that the director of the FHFA is one of those people. Uh, and the, the federal law that gives that person some job protections is unconstitutional. The investors then said, and because of that, this entire agreement needs to be thrown out. Well, they didn't get that last part. They didn't get the whole agreement thrown out. Uh, but they did get the ruling that said that the president has to have the ability to fire the director of the FHFA. And, and today, of course, uh, Joe Biden uh, is in, indicating he's going to do that. Yeah. So is this the case for these investors? Be careful what you ask for. In some respects, yes. Um, you know, going into the Supreme Court, before the Supreme Court got involved, I think most people on the outside thought that the core of the case had nothing to do with that constitutional issue. It was this separate claim that, uh, that the FHFA was exceeding its powers under federal law, under a federal statute. Uh, that's the part of the case the Supreme Court uh, totally threw out today. Uh, the, the, the court said that there's a provision in, in the law that says you can't sue the FHFA when it's acting as a conservator, and that's what the, the agency was doing in this case. Uh, so uh, that main part of the, of, of the lawsuit uh, went away. Just to understand why the stocks fell as much as they did, we're looking at more than 30% declines by the close for, for Fannie and for Freddie. That's because these investors were hoping that money would be restored, right? These would be much more profitable investments. Yeah, and, and they were hoping they would at least get a very big settlement out of this case and that the shares of those companies would, would reflect that. Uh, the, the expectation was that uh, they would have a significant uh, amount of leverage coming out of this Supreme Court uh, case, and uh, as it turns out, they don't have a whole lot of leverage. Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storer does a great job. Thank you, Greg, for being with us sure today on Sound On. I want to underscore how long this has been brewing. I said over a decade, the Wayback Machine. This is President Barack Obama talking about Fannie and Freddie following the housing crisis in 2008. I've always said that any action uh, with respect to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, needs to put taxpayers first and can't under any circumstances bail out shareholders or senior management of that company, uh, those companies. Fast forward almost 10 years, 2019. The Trump administration wanted to end government control of Fannie and Freddie, well, 10 plus one actually. Here's Dr. Ben Carson, who was then director of Housing and Urban Development, testifying about Fannie and Freddie before the Senate. The Trump administration wanted them released from the FHFA. Our reform plan will reduce the federal government's outsized role in housing finance and protect taxpayers. Bring in Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan Zeno. It's always great to spend time with you, Jeannie. The political side of this is really something. The president has already fired the director. He did. He moved very quickly, the White House did, to say today that they were going to oust him. Um, and, and they're obviously going to, we're going to have to see who they're going to be replacing him with. But I do think this was a welcome ruling by many progressives and the Biden administration so they could move in a direction that they have long wanted to do. But to your point, this has been a long time coming. We're looking at almost a decade here. Yeah. Um, move forward with that. Why is this something that progressives wanted and, and why is this important to the White House? What will it mean for people who own homes? 
Well, you know, it, it'll mean that they will be able to move in a direction that pre that progressives, excuse me, have been talking about for some time. And to a certain extent, I, I think it also creates some strange bedfellows because it's also an area in which people in the industry would like to move. So I think on all sides, it's something the White House is really welcoming. And, you know, I think it's interesting, and I, I haven't had a chance to read the decision yet, but what we're hearing reported about the decision by Sam Alito is that this is something that he and, and the court, you know, many members of the court agreed with the White House on. We should note, by the way, that this decision also sends back uh, the investor's case to a lower court. So they actually may be able to recoup some money here. Uh, but there was a statement that came from the White House that made it clear that they were looking for someone who better represented uh, the spirit of this, the values of this administration. Uh, Mark Calabria must have had a very interesting couple of months under the Biden White House. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, to a certain extent, you wonder as he welcomed the decision and supported it and, and yeah. said he would move on. It can't have been a comfortable position for him to be in. So certainly, um, you know, I, I think he, he knew the signs were all there that if they had the ability and immediately when they had the ability, he was going to be ousted. And he certainly was what kind of a candidate. Do you think Joe Biden is looking at? Well, you know, I think that's the big question. I think he's going to be under a bit of pressure here, but certainly they want somebody who is going to represent homeowners, who's going to represent people on the ground. Something, you know, I think we may be talking to some senators, maybe some Elizabeth Warren and other type of people about who he yeah. might name to replace. Yeah, Elizabeth Warren has spent a lot of time talking about this. This is really, it's a, it's a campaign issue. A guy just took you all the way back to 2008, which predates the, the 2012 agreements that allowed the federal government to collect all this money. But going back to the housing crisis, that was a major problem. The roles that Fannie and Freddie were playing, and of course back then we were talking about subprime loans and a real mess. That's right. And, and, you know, in the ruling today, it, it was interesting to me that that Alito said the case was similar to the court's ruling on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Yeah. Um, I believe that was last year. That might have been last term that they that they ruled on that. And so he said there were similar job protections for the director of the CFPB. So there are some interesting parallels there. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, joined by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno. There's something about the housing market when it comes to politics, Jeannie, whether you're talking about mortgage rates, access to credit. The American dream uh, is what we're talking about uh, for constituents when they see the White House, maybe it's a member of Congress, working on their behalf to secure the American dream. It's pretty hard to beat that. It is. And when you know, it comes to politics, it is. And, and one thing I thought was fascinating as I'm still reading through this ruling is Alito sounded a, a little bit like a progressive in some ways. As I read this, he said the removal power, quote, works to ensure that these subordinates serve the people effectively and in accordance with the policies that the people presumably elected the president to promote. And I thought coming from Alito, that was, you know, might be a very welcome statement at this point. Absolutely. Uh, shareholders hopes stay alive as uh, we've been reporting here on Sound On. But of course, the organization is going to change and the politics behind it. Uh, certainly, we'll have a lot more on this coming up. Also ahead today, we're going to assemble the panel. You're going to stay here, right, Jeannie? Always, Joe. Always, always. here.
Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for being with us on Bloomberg Radio. You first heard about this on Bloomberg Sound On this time yesterday when the story first broke. Morgan Stanley will not allow employees to return to the office unless they're vaccinated. Workers, in fact, will have to register their vaccine status by the end of this week. We're joined to talk about it by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno, as well Jennifer Nassour, former chair of the Massachusetts Republican Party and founder of the Pocketbook Project. Welcome to both of you. We don't have a vaccine passport, Jeannie. Is this another example of corporate America taking action because the government cannot or will not in this case? I, I think it is. I think, you know, companies like Morgan Stanley feel like they have a duty to protect, obviously, their workers and their customers and everybody entering and exiting their buildings. And so the, whereas that is not in place at the governmental level, at least, you know, in certain parts of the country, if not most, they have decided to step in. So I think there are issues of liability. I think there are issues of safety. And I think we are going to start to see or continue to see more of this as we go forward. And what will be interesting, if there are lawsuits brought, and I expect there may be some, we may see, you know, what the court has to say about that already in areas like hospitals. The court has said in some cases that the hospitals have a right to require their employees to be vaccinated. Let's talk about some of these concerns as well with Jennifer Nassour. Thanks for being here, Jennifer. Should employers be able to make this requirement? Obviously, a private company can allow who it wants in their space. But considering privacy laws, religious exemptions, this gets complicated. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on today. Um, second, uh, you know, I, I do have some concerns. I mean, I, I'm fully vaccinated. I think I live in Massachusetts. 4.1 million people in Massachusetts are vaccinated, so it's not really an issue here. Um, but, you know, I, I think there are some concerns when it comes to religious exceptions, when it comes to health exceptions. And even though these companies are allowing people to work remotely still, 
Um, how long is that going to go on for? And are they going to be stigmatized by their fellow employees or by their immediate bosses? And so I, I think that's going to have to get worked out. And yes, I do see that there are going to definitely be core challenges on this issue as we go forward, because again, this is, this is still an experimental drug. And until it is full-fledged and everything is worked out, and we see today mm. how um, people under 30 are having heart inflammation issues, right? Are we going to have now the 22 to 30-year-olds that are saying, I don't want to get this vaccine because what if something happens? So, so I think it still needs to be flushed out. But I do agree with Jeannie in the fact that I'm, I'm glad that these companies are, are taking some sort of a stand to protect their workers who can get the vaccine and mm -hmm. for those that can come into their institutions. Jen makes a great point here, Jeannie. Emergency use authorization. Does that complicate this conversation because it's not full-fledged approved by the FDA? It does, and I think that those are the kinds of things that they are going to have to, these companies, whether Morgan Stanley and others, even in my case, for instance, colleges and universities, a little bit of a different scenario, but requiring yeah. students, for instance, to be vaccinated. Um, but as, as you just mentioned, and Jen rightly said, this emergency youth authorization for these vaccines makes this different. I mean, can a company or in the case of you know the government, if they decided to step into this, require vaccination when they themselves haven't even fully approved of the use of this vaccination. And Jen is absolutely right. There are going to be issues involving health, you know, religious exemptions that these companies are going to have to deal with. So mm -hmm. it creates an awful lot of, of questions for the policies these companies put in, put in place. And, you know, it does, at least in my mind, create some type of political and social risk for these companies, whether they do this or they don't, interestingly, on both sides. And I suspect that firms like Morgan Stanley, or we also heard from J.P. Morgan recently, they can probably handle the, the lawsuits. But, Jen, if you look at the difference between these two, J.P. Morgan made news just by saying that people need to come back. They weren't actually delineating between uh, or, or barring uh, unvaccinated from the office. They were going to have separate plans, including social distancing for those who were not vaccinated. Is that a better way to go? I do. I think that it gives people an opportunity where if you're still trying to wrap your head around this um, and, and you haven't been in a position where you've wanted to get the vaccine, you can go to work. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I think it's great when you walk into a shop, when you walk into, um, you know, any place right now and it says if you're vaccinated, you're good. And if you're not vaccinated, please wear a mask. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's the honor system. Um, but if there are lots of people who are vaccinated walking around with masks still. And so I think it's good to give people the option. Again, I worry about the stigmatization, right? You don't show up to work, and then what happens? Are you considered not being as productive as your coworkers that show up? So does the government need to give companies more guidance on this, Jen? I hate government interference. <laughs> I figured I you'd think, say that. No, I... <laughs> Um, I, I think that really it's up to a company by company situation. I think it depends on what boards feel is, um, you know, the best way to go. It, you know, now we have great technology. We are used to Zooming and Skyping. Yep. Those are all wonderful to have in place. Um, but I think they need to be really careful and come up with 
um, with their legal departments with uh, the right terminology to use to make sure that it's not used against anyone. It's still infrastructure week. (laughs) And I'm thinking it's going to be in the next several months. Lots of meetings and no real movement on legislation, even though, well, we had a bipartisan deal on the table a couple weeks ago, right? I think that was my first show here on Bloomberg Radio. What does the White House think about that deal? Press Secretary Jen Psaki says negotiations are following two separate paths. She talked about it today in the White House briefing. This afternoon, uh, Steve Reschetti, Louisa Terrell, Brian Deese are all back up on the Hill right about now, uh, having continued discussions about the path forward. Um, That's one track where we are moving forward on these bipartisan negotiations, and we assess as we conclude each round what the next step should be. So again, if we make progress uh, and if we assess that uh, that it is the appropriate time to bring these officials, uh, these elected officials to the White House, the president looks forward to doing that. Referring to the team of, I believe now, 21 senators signing off on this bipartisan deal. When are they coming over to the White House? And we keep hearing that the sticking point is how to pay for it, right? How to pay for anything. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy talked about it following a meeting today with the House Republican Caucus. The last thing you'd want to do, any economist will tell you this, with inflation rising, to make government fund things that are not infrastructure. That would be detrimental. So we know the score here already. Who's going to budge? Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno is with us, as you were just hearing, joined as well today by Jan Nassour, former chair of the Massachusetts Republican Party, founder of the Pocketbook Project. Jeannie, this is becoming a game of chicken, although I guess we have two different games going on here. One is with the deal makers here, those behind the bipartisan deal. The other is with Democrats, the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, should this go to reconciliation. Which one has a chance? You know, I, I feel like you and I talk about this on a daily Every basis. Day. It's infrastructure <laughs> it's week. Infrastructure day. And we're hearing today, and I know Jen could appreciate this, we're hearing today that by the end of the week, it's a make or break, but I feel like we yeah. keep saying that. I'll meet that. you on Monday, though. <laughs> I know. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, I, I think the fact that we're we're walking or see, watching them walk on these two tracks, as you were just playing that sot by Jen Saki, you know, one is these negotiations that seem to be ongoing with huge questions about how to pay for it and the other really democrats moving forward towards reconciliation and bernie sanders in particular putting together what looks to be a six trillion dollar reconciliation bill then you hear kevin mccarthy say you know there's no way in this environment with the fear of inflation another thing we always talk about we can pay for that so you know i feel that the democrats only shot here is going to be on reconciliation and i am not optimistic they're going to get it done in the calendar we have which is short yeah it is short jen uh, we've talked this up and down on this broadcast and of course there's just a daily drip of news here it sure seems like we've got two different paces though the white house seems to have nothing but patience joe biden give it another week let him talk it's good for politics on the hill though nancy pelosi and chuck schumer want to get this thing done do you think one has better odds than the other um, I, I, I don't. I mean, it's such slim majorities on both ends. And I think it's, it's a really tough subject because, look, Bernie Sanders goes out there. He wants to spend everyone else's money. Um, you know, I don't know how much more time Bernie Sanders has on this uh, wonderful earth of ours, but I know that my kids have a long lifetime and they're going to be paying the bills that Bernie Sanders 
wants to impose on them. And so, um, you know, I think when we're talking six trillion, that's trillion with a T dollars, we really need to have bipartisan support. And you see that you have people like Joe Manchin on one side, um, you know, Senator Thune, Senator Moore Capito on the other side, working together, trying to come to some sort of um, agreement here, but then you have the AOCs and you have the Elizabeth Warrens and the Bernie Sanders that really would like to stick everything in it. This is infrastructure. The, the, the definition of infrastructure is roads and bridges. It's brick and mortar. And so let's talk about fixing those. Let's talk about creating jobs and, and come up with an actual real number that feels comfortable to both sides because we all need to share in this bill. It's not just it's going to be shared by one side or the other. So check back Monday. I have to ask you both. <laughs> I have to ask you both as well about the plan to head to the border. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris heading to the border this week following a lot of criticism for not going after being tapped by the president to help solve the crisis at the border. She will be in El Paso at the end of the week. Press Secretary Jen Psaki was pressed in the briefing today by several reporters. Why now? Why go now? And she pointed to progress at the border, saying that's why. She's uh, taken, made a number of announcements about how to address root causes that she go was going to assess with the Department of Homeland Security and with the administration when it was the appropriate time to go. And I will note that we're at this point in part because we've made a great deal of progress. Jeannie, it's interesting this lands the day before Donald Trump holds a big rally is the timing a coincidence? I don't think so. I hate to be so cynical, but I, I think it has a lot to do with Trump. It also has a lot to do with the criticism that she has, um, you know, endured over not going. She needs to go. She should have gone earlier. They are absolutely right. The number of child arrivals has decreased in April and May, but they still are well above or at least far above what they were in 2019. But, you know, I think they have to listen, and I would advise them, not that they've asked, to listen to people like uh, Vin Vincente Gonzalez, the Democrat from the border, who says she needs to be there and they need to be moving forward on how to get immigration addressed and the border crisis addressed. And so she has a lot on her plate, but going there is a first step. Jen, is this a photo op or is there more to it? I am 100% in agreement with Jeannie on this one. I, I, you know, I mean, it's over 90 days. It's long overdue. She took a trip to Guatemala before taking a trip to the border. Yeah. Um, really needed to be concerned with what was going on in the U.S. Um, these kids coming in, coyotes, sex trafficking, human trafficking, the whole thing going on down there. It, it's really a disaster. And this is not something that's partisan. Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno. And Jen Nasur, former chair of the Mass Republican Party, founder of the Pocketbook Project. Nice to have an old neighbor along for the ride today. With a hat tip to Boston, I'm Joe Matthew. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for spending some time with us on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington where it is no secret the government is spending money, a lot of money, since the start of COVID, and possibly a lot more to come, as we were just discussing with the panel. It's unclear what will come from this whole debate over infrastructure, as the parties don't even agree on the definition of infrastructure. And we're joined at this precarious moment by Congressman Ralph Norman, Republican from South Carolina, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Examiner this week, headlined, Big Spending is Making Our Inflation Problem Worse. Congressman, welcome. Well, glad to be with you, Joe. 
You point out you've been a real estate developer for 40 years, so you have a unique perspective. Do you not agree with the, the chair of the Federal Reserve that this is temporary? Well, the spending's not temporary. I mean, they can't print enough money to spend their way out of more and more inflation. I mean, when you see lumber up 400 percent, when you see commodities uh, that are uh, uh, things we have to have, whether it's corn for ethanol, whether it's Mm -hmm. copper for uh, for, you know, the electrical wiring that goes into a lot of components and they're putting regulation after regulation to take them out. When you see gasoline, uh, all of a sudden we go from energy independence from energy dependence. No, this is here to stay with us and even going to go higher with uh if if it continues and with the tax hikes that he's talking about uh we're seeing the gas tax uh, well yeah death tax 1031 exchange is gone uh in my real estate world it's a it's a showstopper we've seen a big pullback in in a lot of the commodities that you mentioned including lumber do you then see it the opposite from the fed that that's temporary that those prices Everything from lumber to copper will come back and keep rising? You know, if it comes down, you, you've seen lumber come down yeah. you know, some 5 10% over the last 30 days. But, I mean, you just can't keep doing what they're doing. And you're going to see people that are holding projects up because of, you know, because of the inflation that's set in. It's not just what this administration does not understand because they've never been in the private sector. They've never had to meet a payroll. They don't know the time value of money. As as an example, it's not just lumber. When you go in to get a water heater in most sections, most states in the country, it's a 10 to 12-week delay. Uh, When you go to get uh, PVC pipe or different components of cast iron pipe, you've got a two- to three-month delay. You can't do that when you build a, a project that really stimulates the economy and what uh, South Carolina's experiencing anyway because the jobs are there. But you couple, you know, the shortages, the prices, the fact that the, in, the re- endless regulations that are about to hit, it all goes to show I, I think we're in for a long haul uh, unless we get a, a reversal in the administration, which they're just not going to do because they don't understand it, nor that they have the competence to do it. Let's talk about the infrastructure debate right now and be specific uh, to this conversation. There are parallel negotiations going on. I realize we don't know how this is going to end. But when it comes to roads, bridges, tunnels, is it time to invest in them? No, not the way they consider investing. I mean, Joe, we started out, he threw out a number $4 trillion. <clears throat> Now he's paired that back to $1.2 trillion. It's a spending that he's saying is over eight years, $579 billion is new spending. And, you know, pick a number. But, you know, he's used he's using $360 billion for roads, um, you know, and highways and bridges, which that's true infrastructure for me, along with broadband. But, but take one of the line items is I think it's $48 billion for public transit. Define that for me. Public transit where? Uh, or power infrastructure, I think it's $73 billion. Is that, what is that, Transformers for Texas? Is it solar panels? Um, I have no, and then he's got $47 billion for climate resiliency. What is that? I mean, it's just a giveaway. Uh, if it's anything like his original proposal, 
it's a small part that goes for what we consider true infrastructure. And then the balance mm-hmm. is to bail out cities and states that have been mismanaged and to, you know, to put it to things that are not infrastructure at all. You just and, put four uh, on the table, though, which is this is I this is good. Let's be specific. Roads, bridges, tunnels. You add broadband. That is kind of our modern infrastructure. Does your district need broadband access? Yes, it does. What happens when you drive out of the city? Well, you drive out of the city, you, you're out of the, you can't, the children that can't get the Internet, there are places the roads are deteriorating. There are places that, um, you know, the bridges uh, go to ask anybody who has who paid to inspect bridges. We've got a problem. One just happened uh, a couple hours ago here in Washington, an overpass, but it failed. Yeah. So true infrastructure needs to be done. But the way this administration is doing it is going for, the majority of it is going for things that are not, in my definition of, of what what constitutes infrastructure. We heard today um, from New York Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, of course, chair of the House Democratic Caucus, and I'm pretty sure I know how you're going to react to this. But it's central to what we're talking about because he pointed to the need for investments in what he called the caring economy. What is the caring economy? Listen to the congressman. We believe a meaningful investment in the caring economy in long-term care, in home care, in child care, in caring for our seniors, in health care, is important uh, for the American people emerging from a deadly pandemic. The idea here, of course, and you've heard this before we're speaking now, Congressman, is that child care is part of the infrastructure concept when it comes to getting people back to work, that people can't go back to work until child care is covered or other elements of the so-called caring economy. I'm assuming that we have a breakdown here in the conversation uh, with Congressman Ralph Norman, or does your district need investments in the caring economy? Not only a breakdown, a total disconnect. Uh, he is unconnected to the real world, the real reality. It's just somebody that's never, he's never experienced it. It's like I mean, he's never been in the private. Well, he may be a lawyer, but he's never been in the private sector where he's had to meet a payroll. And no, he. I tell you, the, the Trump administration was on the right track. Uh, we were involved with it. I mean, get this: uh, he was going to p- try to pass an infrastructure package, and it was going to be based on uh, a competitive bid situation from each state. You put equity up before you got the first taxpayer dollars for so-called infrastructure, and it would have been really infrastructure, not this child care. And if I hear coronavirus one more time, I'm tired of it. Corona is a year and a, what, year and a half old now. Uh, they've ridden that horse, uh, beat that mule as much as they can beat him. Uh, that's just a word to try to get uh, more dollars. And on top of all of this, Joe, where are the, where are the offsets? Explain to me in this new spending, tell me how you're going to offset it, because you know, to add to the $30 trillion, which in my mind is $60 trillion, uh, when you put the, every agency from Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, mm-hmm. um, transportation. I mean, it's all in the hole. I mean, post office. Pick an agency that's running in the, uh, in the black, and I don't think you can find one. But it's a disconnect. Well, and let me ask you about just, spending on what you want to buy. Roads, bridges, tunnels, broadband. Should that be deficit spending? Where where would that money come from? Do you have offsets in mind for those? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, you'd have to go through the budget, and I'm not on the budget committee this year, but you've got to start having the dialogue with what should should be sunsetted, just like you you and I do and your listeners do in your family budgets. What should be offset? What uh, what what are priorities? And you set priorities. I sat through an over, uh, oversight meeting where they want to spend $88 billion for new new cars, electric cars, for the post office. And my response was, is that really a priority? When you have the military being cut 30 to 35%, when you have you know, true infrastructure needs, but it ought to be done in a competitive bid situation uh, with, with states not getting money just because it's been mismanaged. But I would go through the budget. I would, I mean, there's so much money that's out there uh, that, and a lot of them are social programs that should be pared back. Uh, a lot of them are the SNAP program uh, that in the farm bill that should be, uh, should be adjusted. And you, you and can find a trillion have, dollars worth to offset this? So you can find more than that. That's, more that's than a trillion? It. Yes, yes. Now, it's going to have to be some strong debate, and everybody wants cuts until their ox is gored. And so I get that. But we're not even having those discussions. I mean, I have this, this is a hundred, day 154 of this administration, and there has yet to be any discussion of, of any substance of uh, any type of cuts. Uh, the, the year I left, uh, the budget, I think, is one program I suggested to cut a 10%. And you tell me uh, how you can't find 10%, whether it's a family budget, whether it's a business budget, or whether it's a particularly government. You can find far more. But 10%, and it was like I was taking someone's child and put, putting them out the star. I'm sorry we're out of time, Congressman. Do you think infrastructure, yes or no? becomes law no. this year no you no, heard it I, well it, the senate will will decide it but hopefully not in this package now you heard it from congressman ralph norman a republican from south carolina fascinating conversation fascinating hour i hope you learned as much as i did here on bloomberg sound on i'm joe matthew this is bloomberg top thrill two is like no other course two 420 foot vertical speedways three launches all right let's talk strategy Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.